what's incredible with Grime when we sit here today and look back is that nobody ever thought it would happen. It had to deal with an institutionally racist music industry and society. Not for a minute did I see by the end of the 2010s a grime artist would be headlining Glastonbury. If you told me that, I would have just absolutely flatly refused that as a possibility. The fact that, you know, grime exploded back into life was never guaranteed. It's still kind of mad that it happened at all. It's incredible to see the success they've got from a scene that was so held down and, and, and like, if you will, like, destined not to succeed. But they, they said, fuck this, we're not letting that happen. What Grime did to the London scene specifically was change the dress code. That's the power of what these guys have done for essentially casual or sportswear. They've got that kind of impact now. If they wear something, it's selling. Welcome to Identity, a series brought to you by ID Maxi. Join me, Osman Ahmed, ID's Fashion Features Director, as I explore the enduring legacy of some of the last four decades' most influential subcultures. Grime music was dark, loud, angry, unapologetic. It was instantly provocative, fiercely independent, and was come to be the voice of British disillusionment. For many, this was a vital socio-political tool. It channeled the resentment and despair of life in the UK, but it was also a voice of hope, of creativity flourishing from the rougher, realer parts of London that were hardly considered go-to destinations. OK, OK, so for those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, here's a brief guide to where grime came from. It married the wordplay of dancehall and hip-hop with British inner-city sounds. In the 90s, there was jungle music, 170 beats per minute and heavy bass lines. And often in the same clubs, in the next room, you'd have UK Garage, which was slower, more sensual, usually clocking in at around 130 beats per minute. In some ways, grime is the rebellious child of both. Fast and raw with the MC at the fore. One of the pioneers who saw the evolution firsthand was DWE. Yo, Wild One is DWE. Local music in the building. Jesus. How I got into Jungle was um, just listening to it on radio, Cool FM, and... Um, there was a lot of record shops at the time, and um, yeah, a few of my friends got decks. Yeah, it just kind of become physical. Not a lot of music comes physical. It's more like you just listen to it, like listening to R and B, hip hop. Growing up as a young kid, it just felt far. But with drum and bass, um, the clubs, the nights, it was like kind of hair now. One of the groups to make it around the world, far beyond the local scene, was Chasing Status. Here's one half of the duo, Sol Milton. I was about 12, wasn't I? 12 or 13. And it was in, it was in Marble Arch. Uh, I remember it very clearly. And the DJ just played Original Nutter by Shy, Shy FX. And it was literally one of those like, what the fuck is this? Never heard anything like it. And that was that was the gateway into everything, jungle, garage. Ended up in in grime, 
you name it, Moschino, Versace, it all began from that one moment, really, 100%. One of the ways in which grime built on Jungle and Garage was the way that it drew on those scenes as roots in Jamaican dance hall, putting the MC at the front and centre. <sighs> Jamaican influence has been important in all music, man. It's so important, really and truly. The generation of West Indian people coming to England, they had a big influence on the UK culture. And that has filtered through all the music we do, from jungle through to garage, through all the the music, like even hip-hop, the patois, the wagwan. Just that word alone is phenomenal. And I feel like it's more first-hand than in America, even. It was, it was funny, because at that period of time, when you start getting into, like, we were like, right, I'm really into jungle. You know, you're into jungle, that's it. And it's not the same thing else, jungle drum and bass. And then and, and your friend's like, bruv, garage is sick. And, like, suddenly realising that, wow, these two cultures are actually hand in hand and it's br- the brilliance of actually you know you start realising wow how, the, how well it works works in a rave it's, it's, it's like the perfect alternative to, to like the fast paced jungle drum bass room you go into the garage room and it's, it's, like, it's like sleek and sexy but it's still like rude boy and like you know like the kind of cross pollination between the fashion you know like it started getting a bit slicker in the garage room a little you know a few more loafers started coming in the mix the heart of this culture was in the club, where the tribalism of music genres and the dress codes attached to them were on full display. Soul from Chase and Status cut his teeth on the dance floor at Bagley's, the historic London nightlife venue in King's Cross. Bagley's was in the middle of basically like a derelict part of King's Cross in this huge warehouse. And everyone would come from all parts of the country. And you'd see people just either parking up Bailey nearby where they shouldn't be parking or just like scuttering from like King's Cross train station. There's quite long meandering walk into looking like nothingness. And you see this huge, huge like gargantuous warehouse. And outside of it is like thousands of thousands of like ravers like skinny fundamentally the guys wearing like skinny Versace jeans and YSL shirts with like very neat hair and like classics or loafers and girls dressed to the nine you know like the queue was the catwalk you'd walk down like to get to the end of the queue which is where you had to get when you get in uh, to queue up for Bagley's and you would see uh, an array of what's going on in fashion from all around London all around the country and the buzz was absolutely it was something else man it was just like and although there was thousands of people there, you felt like it was your own little secret that people don't know about. You know, like if you'd be walking on the road and you'd see someone in the same kind of outfit, everyone there was in your little secret kind of club, if you will. I had many epiphany in that night, in that, in that venue, and uh, it changed our lives. I think it changed many people's lives. Jungle and Garage came to prominence far before the advent of social media. So like many subcultures, they were born in the clubs where people queued to be seen just as much as they did to listen to the music. It goes without saying that on the dance floor, these scenes began to develop distinctive looks. 
I'm Chantelle Fiddy, a freelance journalist and music industry professional. Well, I, I moved to London when I was um, 18 years old to study journalism. And at the time, I was coming from a kind of jungle, happy, hardcore, raving background. And I, I was really into UK garage music. But one thing I do remember as a student um, was that UK garage felt quite exclusive. So you had people that liked to dress up a bit, you know, and then to go to clubs. Like, you can't have high heels on in a dubstep rave, so it's a different class. Dubstep jungle is not dirty, but it's a bit hardcore. So garage was just a bit more dressed up, I suppose. Um, in jungle, you just kind of just look how you want to look. When you don't have to care about that, you woke up at nine o'clock, you're in your tracksuit, you can go to the jungle rave in your smelly tracksuit, that's what I'm saying. But with them raves, the girls, like everyone would say, right, let's relink up, come out looking good. You get me? So this is what you do. It was all about designer labels and champagne, you know, wearing Moschino, Louis Vuitton, Iceberg. As a student, you cannot afford to look the part. And, and one of my early jobs was working for Smooth at Ministry of Sound. And I used to have to go on a Friday night. And I was one of the only people in the club allowed to wear flat shoes because this was back in the day when high heels was still essential to get in. And I've never worn high heels, never will. So my job was to go around the club and document the garage ravers and, you know, what was going on, celebrities coming through. So it gave me a real insight into, into the culture firsthand. Looking back, the idea of grime as the offspring of Garage and Jungle is clear to see. But this was no happy marriage. The cracks in the union were beginning to show. Dan Hancocks is a journalist and the author of Inner City Pressure, The Story of Grime. The variance between a um, no hats, no hoods, smart shoes, like no trainers, mad matching jeans and tops for the guys, extravagant kind of dresses for the girls, um on the one hand, and then on the other hand, just overwhelmingly like tracksuits basically, but like good looking tracksuits, matching track, you know, like nice color coordination, <laughs> that grime sort of style on the other hand. I mean, you could see the, you could see the way that the music styles were pushing against each other represented in the way that the fashion styles were, were pushing against each other. And those arguments were actually a key part of when, when the two sort of sibling music genres were falling out with each other, essentially, it was often expressed through fashion. Like, we don't want these little aggy little boys coming around in their tracksuits, ruining our sophisticated champagne. And um, like, it was all garage, UK garage was very adult, in, <laughs> I think is the best word for it. I don't know if you've ever heard this story, but there was also um, a UK garage committee that was formed to try and stop grime being played at garage raves. There was this fear from a lot of the old UK garage contingency that grime was this kind of thug music. Um, you know, it was going to bring trouble to events. It was all guys in tracksuits, whereas garage, they wanted the sexy girls, the high heels, the champagne. So there was a real tug of cultures going on. Do you know what I mean? Because you can't even get in with your clothes from earlier. You can't get in. And this is why a lot of kids don't go to raves because to make that effort, they feel like they're slipping. Like they wear the balaclava all day. They're with the goons. They wear tracksuit. Bag charges coming down. So when you're saying, let's go to that rave in North, they're like, in North. They're not, they have to get older, make more money to where now they can go to fucking Louis Vuitton or 
and then actually look the part. Whereas Garage was all about champagne and Hennessy, smart shoes and logos, Grimes Kids were all about dark tracksuits and trainers. It represented a shift in values, away from the flashy 90s into a more modern, more realistic reflection of millennial Britain. I think Grime was a reaction against Garage more socially and culturally. I mentioned about the money aspect of Garage and, you know, this was a time when there was a lot of cuts and austerity and youth clubs were closing left, right and centre. There was nothing to do for young people. So suddenly, with the emergence of the PlayStation and games like Music 2000, I think it was called, suddenly... It was like a democracy when it came to music production. You know, anyone can go if they've got a PC or a console and potentially start making music. So it took that, um, you know, the need for a high-end studio because Garage was really, really polished. And I think that was sonically the thing that separated Grime was how raw it sounded because people couldn't afford mix downs or, you know, what's mastering? That came a lot later in the day. This was literally make the music, make what you feel, spit what you feel on top of it. And... We're going to run with it from there. There was perhaps one group who represented this shift more than any other. So Solid Crew. They hit number one in the 2001 UK charts with their hit, 21 Seconds. It was like Garage had matured and then Grime came along and was was like, get out of the way. I mean, literally get out of the way, old man. It was pretty much what Romeo said to DJ Spoonie on uh, Radio 1 when they had them on the Dream Team show. It was like, you've had your time, now move aside. Our first music, music that we released in like 2003 was like very early dubstep. And it was still, it was basically like when Garage was getting dark and turning into grime. Whereas like MCs were starting spitting on these kind of like dark two-step beats. And So Solid obviously had been like the absolute kings of that. And they took it to another level and they went number one. So that obviously spawned everything. So Solid crew was just like a massive slap in the face and the balls to the music industry. And what I mean by that is... This was a time of Victoria Beckham and Dane Bowers trying to do Garage. So you've suddenly got this this group of, what, 25, 30 South Londoners mobbing the music scene. That's what it felt like. Um, And the music was just incredible. And it it scared the life out of the music industry uh, as well as the establishment. For such a sort of epochal transition, there are a few critical um, artists to talk about and so solid crew. Probably the most obvious one, but um, I would pair, I think, Heartless Crew are also worth mentioning. Pay As You Go, who were effectively a garage crew that had a very fleeting kind of bit of pop success. And then every single member of that garage crew became an instrumental part of the grime scene. You know, so it's G- it's DJ Genius who set up Rinse FM. It's Slimzy, the greatest grime DJ of all time. Um, it's Maxwell D. It's Wiley, the godfather. Grime was raw. It was rebellious. Oftentimes, it was controversial. All of this only made it stand out from the crowd even more. I think what this did for Grime, though, in a good way, is it always made Grime the outsider. That inspires you to push your own DIY ethos forward and why Grime became synonymous with DIY culture. You know, So it, it changed the, the face of, of what was to come for Grime and the entrepreneurship behind it as well.
Grime emerged from the close-knit communities of East London's council estates. There was a brotherly sense of camaraderie that would propel its rise. East London is the hub of grime, without a doubt. Forest Gate, for instance, you had, you know, FTSE, D-Double, Dizzy Rascal, all, you know, all, all from around those ways, basically. They all grew up together and they all went on to become trendsetters. Maybe it's the Jamaican culture in the area, because obviously FTSE's, FTSE's father, R.I.P., was a you know, king original sound and he was a very influential figure. And I'm sure that the culture is just real deep there, you know. A large part of that is the tenacity and the endurance and the the strong will of the artists making the music and the, and the, also the, the industry they built around it. We need a photographer, you're going to go and learn how to be a photographer. We need a choreographer, right, you're going to do that. It was very much a family kind of vibe. And I think that's carried grime through and that constant support of each other has allowed people to grow. Everything was happening close. It just seemed to be just opportunities close by. And even if you're not from East, you would have come down to it. And I've been on North, uh, North London radio stations and I've been on West. Um, so, D-Double, can you tell me a bit about the community behind this subculture? I mean, what was it like for you in the grime scene at that time? It was just supportive, man. It was just more about the people, but in the club, when we're all there on the mic and we all spit, it was just fun. It wouldn't happen. I asked Dan Hancocks why he thinks the grime scene was so unique. Like, grime could have only come from London, I think, because of the multicultural hybridity, because of the sort of um, power and reach and just quality of, like, black British music. There's a real lineage there. It goes back to the London Posse as a UK rap crew in the early 90s as well. But I think it's also something about the geography of London and its council estates, the way it throws people together. And they all kind of you know, folded this this stuff in together. You know, Skepta told me about how there was something very European about the having an affinity for the club music side of this because, you know, this is not... Grime is not reggae, you know? It maybe, maybe comes from it in many respects, but it's also been fu- fused together with, like, Britain and particularly London's sort of club culture. What was it Skepta said to me? It was like, you know, we're our ears in Europe are like attuned to these sort of high frequency synths and to like rapid fire like club music. And so it would only make sense to bring that in with the various rap and sort of sound system traditions. Um so yeah, it's 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 London's like social and cultural mix that creates grime effectively. There are a lot of factors that have gone into it, but I think it ultimately comes down to respecting grime and its true art form. And when people go back to doing grime as it's meant to be done, like you don't need a chorus, just spray your bars, have the right beat. Like that's what grime is about. And the moment you remember that as a grime artist, you're always going to win. Disney Vascal winning the Mercury Music Prize, I think it changed everything. I think it was a point where people realised grime's a thing, UK rap's a thing. Dizzy Rascal's album, Boy in the Corner, came out in 2003 and it pushed grime into the mainstream. That same year, it won the prestigious Mercury Music Award. DJ Semtex is one of UK hip-hop's most legendary figures and has been on tour with Dizzy Rascal since the very beginning. My, my first experience with Dizzy was through Wiley. So 
I was working at Def Jam at the time and, you know, they they were like, we need to make Ludacris big in the UK. What can we do? I said, you need to put Wiley on a remix because Wiley's popping, he's got the clubs going. So it was for Ludacris rollout. So I hook up with Wiley. He plays him in a mix that he's done. And he says, oh, by the way, I put this kid on. Um, that guy over there is Dizzy Rascal. And he was, he was literally in a corner. And that's when I first met Diz, basically. And then, and then that, that was it. And then eight years later, you know, like I'd been touring with him, working with him and everything else. And um, it was, yeah, it was a crazy experience. It was dope. I think he kicked open the door wide open for everybody. And like I said, there was So Solid, Pays You Go, Miss Dynamite and everything else. But what he did was unapologetically take it somewhere else. That album had a huge effect on the grime scene. DWE explains why. Yeah, I was kind of shocked. It was big. I was in Ayanapa in a bar and Dizzy's tune was just on on the TV in the corner, fix up, look sharp. And I was just like, it's gone international from what we do. And it wasn't crime. It was hip hop. It was just a sick piece of music from nowhere. Then Kano came out. Then I heard Kano's album and it's got songs with substance, singing, and it's not crime. Yeah, I was aware of opportunities in a different area of what we do, opportunities to be yourself. Alongside the mainstream success, the underground grime scene was still bubbling away. It grew through play on pirate radio stations, underground television channels like Channel U, circulated via sought-after DIY DVDs and early internet platforms like Jamal Edwards' SBTV. As a result, Grime finally had a visual identity being disseminated to British youth culture. I think it was those early DVDs, yeah? There was one particular. Um, they had Kano on there with Jammer. Kano was like in the street, near where he lives, with a, with a mug of tea, with his slippers on, fluffy slippers on, like a bad boy, like dressing gown. And he just looked like an absolute, like, star, you know, and obviously Jam looked like a real cat with huge dreadlocks. We you know we're young at this time as well. And it was like, you know, wicked fashion as well. It was just really like enticing to see. And then there was a snippet in that same DVD with Getz. Um, he did an incredible lyric about when the feds see me there and he see legs, which me and Will, like, for years, was one of the most incredible bits of MCing we've ever seen. And that was a real like eye opener into like who these people are, like the characters in this scene, you know. Fueled by the internet, music executives started scouting in neighbourhoods way off their usual beaten track. They were all searching for the next big thing in grime. But as with any subculture, it wasn't long before the scene started to become diluted. I started to actually get commissions and get paid writing about crime only at the moment when the artists in question were making pop music, um, which was an irony that, you know, accompanied the irony of them finally getting paid when they were making music they didn't really care about. But they were all quite happy, I think, for the most part, like, finally getting paid and finally getting a little bit of fame. However, money wasn't the only problem. Soon, politicians started to demonise grime and its rising stars based on perceptions that it was promoting crime and gang culture. Part of what was lost wasn't just the change in musical direction of grime becoming this sort of pop hybrid. Um, It was also the fact that grime raves and, to an extent, pirate stations had all been shut down. I remember going to a 
seminal Sidewinder grime rave in Swindon uh, and the entirety of the London scene and fan base kind of all going in their cars um, up the motorway and then returning at five in the morning. Um, just a mad state of affairs like Swindon, the home of grime, is it? Chantal Fiddy witnessed it firsthand. There was also, let's be honest, probably an element of racism holding back certain promoters. This was the days of Form 696. So if you had any kind of microphone music or black music going on, you had to fill in a Form 696, which essentially asked for details of every performer, their name, their address, who they're associated to. And it was trying to build a picture of, you know, who who knew who, who was associated with who, potentially in a gangway, but it was only for black music events. So there was always a lot of barriers, you know, getting in the way of trying to put this music on. And only it, it's it's been an uphill struggle for a lot of people trying to put on good events. And it's still I think it's still the case today. It's not as readily available as it should be. You won't find a grime night every week in London. In the end, this is the story of Renaissance and Rebirth. Thanks to its deep roots and community, Grime came back stronger with a new generation who went back to those very roots to take the genre to incredible new heights. The fact that, you know, Grime exploded back into life was never guaranteed. It's still kind of mad that it happened at all. I think it really began with uh, Meridian Dan's A German Whip. So you have German Whip is the one critical tune. And again, it was just an unapologetic grime tune, and it blew up. But then for me, it's it's basically That's Not Me, the Skepta tune. You know, Skepta made That's Not Me almost uh, by accident, but he did do it for, the, for reasons that explain why grime came back in a way. He was going to catwalks, he was wearing LV and, and Gucci, and he wasn't happy in himself, and that was reflected in the music he was making as well. There was something missing, and that what was missing was encased in Jammer's old synth, which he had to track down. In fact, he contacted Jammer, and he was like, do you have the synth that we made all of the classic grind beats on? He was like, no, I gave it away to a kid on the estate. And Skepta was like, oh my God, Skepta was really angry with him. He was like, I need that synth. I feel like I've got to, like you know, unleash this sort of core essence in me that I've been denying these last few years when I've become a, a sort of, you know, fashionista pop star. Uh, so Jammer and Skepta go on this wild goose chase to hunt down the classic synth from 2003. They find it, get it back off the kid, and they make they make That's Not Me, and it, it just sort of, the message of sort of authenticity and being true to yourself, sort of perfect for a, a period in which, you know, Instagram is coming into, <laughs> into life and... Um, and, and actually, it can't be emphasised enough that the clue was in, actually in social media, it depresses me to say in a way, but in the sense that, like, here was an opportunity for artists to get in touch with their fans directly, to market direct to their fans without needing a, you know, overly, like, kind of institutionally, structurally sort of racist and, and unadventurous music industry to help them. There's something really satisfying when you zoom out and look at the narrative of what happened to grime over time, that without that sort of downtime when everything seemed very bleak for underground black British music, for it to win in the end is just all the more satisfying. I just feel so, so happy, so blessed. Like, I don't know, I don't even know, I, there's not even words for it. It's like, a, it's something that you, 
dream about and you think about for so long like becoming this musician that like, you always have these dreams of like one day releasing an album and then you drop it and then but it's a number one by god's grace like all these things and i'm thinking right like this is actually happening Stormzy, one of the biggest selling musicians of today and the first grime artist to headline Glastonbury, is a symbol of how the genre went truly global. No longer niche, it has come to be influential with its sound, its politics, even its look. Grime artists now front campaigns for major fashion houses, trainers in tracksuits have gone from Bow to Bond Street, and the community that was once vilified as dangerous to society are now looked up to as a new generation's shining role models. No longer a child, Grime has truly grown up, and the kids made it good. Yeah, it's interesting to sort of reflect on the fact that in the early days of Grime, the sort of kids in tracksuits with sort of man bags and... Um, you know, matching it, matching Air Force Ones or Harachis, uh, was you know condemned by you know British pop culture at large. You know, it's the period when kind of hood rats and chavs in, were the like horrible slurs against kind of young young people, particularly young black British people, but just young working class people, boys in general. I think specifically that aesthetic has definitely been a lot more accepted now, and you know. I think it's just satisfying to see the fashion um, aesthetics, just like the music, spread out from beyond the few postcodes around E3 and E7 in, in East London uh, to the whole country. And I think Skepta really sealed the deal when he came back with That's Not Me. And I think there was a scenario where he wore a Sports Direct t-shirt on stage and his whole mantra was, I want to be able to wear something that other people can afford because often with celebrity, you look at them on stage and there's no way you can even compete with that. And I think sales of that T-shirt, I can't remember the stat for how many units they shifted the day after that event. It was insane. And that's the power of what these guys have done for essentially casual or sportswear. They've got that kind of impact now. If they wear something, it's selling. And to have ambassadors like a Skepta, people who are through and through, grime to the core, and can tell you the stories about when it began, that is what has set it apart from others, other genres and what's keeping it alive. What's happening now is UK is accepted. That's the word I want to give it. UK music. Jungle, garage, dubstep. So now, because UK's been accepted, the whole scene has been accepted. So whether you're Georgia Smith or you're Mist or you're Skepta or you're me or you're Kano, Chipmunk, right? He can, he's got tunes with bashment tunes. He's got rap tunes. He's got this. This is what we are. We're this UK artist. That, so it's, it's either good or not. And it's, that's what it's about. It's not about strictly making this sound and strictly just make what you love. Identity was written and presented by Osman Ahmed with research and additional writing by Ailey Duffy, production assistance by Amelia Phillips, Marta Abramaitite and Sean Griffiths and art direction and design by Callum Glenday and Alexander Talarcher. The audio producer was me, Robin Liebert, and Identity 
It's produced by Podmasters for Vice Media.